The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream hundreds of Gettysburg videos online, on the app, and on Roku. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today we're on location at Fort Mifflin in Philadelphia. In 1777, the only thing keeping the British Army from fully occupying Philadelphia was Fort Mifflin. For that reason, the British instituted what would be the largest siege of the entire American Revolution. Although the men inside would ultimately surrender, they held out long enough to allow George Washington and his Continental Army to escape to Valley Forge and keep the Revolution alive. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the siege of Fort Mifflin is Beth Beatty, Executive Director of Fort Mifflin on the Delaware, and author Tim McGrath. Thank you both for being here. Pleasure. Thanks, Leiter. Beth, tell us how you first became involved with Fort Mifflin. Well, it was sort of a long and winding road. My academic degree is a business degree from Lehigh, and that was my early career actually in public accounting. Uh, after having my children, I got involved in a local historic site, ironically, a Quaker farmhouse, and worked through the education program into the office and found myself here uh, not quite five years ago. Tim? I actually came to Fort Mifflin first as a kid, as a, a visitor, and uh, repeat visits and then was asked to join the board a, a few years ago and had a stint on the board here, but also as a history major and getting involved in working on books on uh, Commodore John Barry and later the Continental Navy. You know, the, the research and digging into this place was fascinating. So let's talk about the location. What kind of place was Philadelphia in the 18th century? It was the second largest English-speaking city in the world and was the busiest port in all of the Western Hemisphere. Uh, just a remarkable place. Uh, it, it's uh, exports for the envy of the world. Uh, iron ore that was brought down to Delaware on uh, the Durham boats that later brought Washington's troops across the Delaware to fight the Battle of Trenton. Uh, furniture uh, that was built in Philadelphia was uh, in demand everywhere. And uh, the usual goods, the, you know, the, the river was one of the main arteries of business in the world. Had a population of about 30,000, uh, which made it uh, the biggest city in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, it's just a remarkable cultural place. Uh, there were churches of all denominations, a couple of synagogues. Uh, thanks to Ben Franklin, there were a couple of cultural meccas themselves, uh, the American Philosophical Society, and he also founded Pennsylvania Hospital where John Adams, when he visited it as a member of the Continental Congress, found a, uh, a uh, uh, 
client of his in the lunatic ward of the uh, of the hospital. But it it was uh, it was the envy of the of the colonies. It was that great a city. Philadelphia, obviously a major city, but there aren't any forts to defend it. And there's no armies parading around it. Why not? Philadelphia was founded by Quakers, and a lot of that Quaker philosophy and the Quaker values to this day still inform the culture in the city. So it wasn't until the early 1770s that the British recognized uh, the need for some defensive mechanisms on the Delaware River, and they selected Mud Island as a good place to build the fort strategically. Uh, you can imagine that Mud Island is not a great place to build much of anything, let alone a military fortification. So uh, the, the job was never actually completed once it was initially started. The British actually <clears throat> sent uh, an engineer, Captain John Montrezor, and he designed Fort Mifflin. Uh, he did not stay long enough for its completion. That did not occur until after the revolution began. But basically, the groundwork for the fort was uh, Captain Montrezor's idea. Montrezor's story is of particular interest. He was the British chief engineer in America during the early 1770s, but his family history is of French Huguenot descent. And you'll find the influence of many French engineers here at Fort Mifflin. It's one of the themes that we use to tell the fort's story. So he was given a limited budget and told to build this fortification on Mud Island, a muddy spit of land in the Delaware River. Early maps note that it was mostly drowned at high tide. And he was frustrated because he was given this grand task and a limited budget. And this is also a theme that you will see repeated at the fort over the years. So he departed on July 4th, 1772, returning to England, leaving the west wall of the fort unfinished. Um, he was ultimately called upon again by the British after the fort was holding out under siege for so long, far longer than anyone anticipated. And he is the author of her ultimate destruction because it was his suggestion to sail the vessels up the back channel and basically bombard the fort at point blank range. I'd like to talk a little bit about the Quaker aspect. Uh, how much did Quakerism dominate the politics of Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania was founded by William Penn, a, a Quaker, and it was one of the earliest places of actual religious freedom, not religious freedom for the founding uh, people, but religious freedom for all residents. And the Quakers are very supportive of education. They are not supportive of warfare. And you will find vestiges of these Quaker tenants today, even in Philadelphia. So it wasn't um, a city that was particularly initially concerned with defense. Tim, if you weren't a Quaker and you didn't agree with those principles, how would you feel about the city being so defenseless? I don't know if it was that much of an issue before the war. I know there's certainly some great stories back and forth because there were, as a port, it was constantly worried about the depredations of pirates that were, you know, just down the, the river in the bay from time to time. Uh, but by the time that the, the war began, uh, the, the city more than wanted to get itself ready for the invasion they were sure to come. Uh, Benjamin Franklin arrived on May 6th from England after uh, suffering the embarrassment in the cockpit of Parliament being called out on uh, uh, all of the American uh, subversions going on that he was indirectly or directly playing a hand in. And once he got back in, he was instrumental in setting up the defenses for the Delaware. Uh, he gets credit for some things he shouldn't, but some of his ideas were novel. Uh, they included, obviously, finishing this fort. They began fort, uh, the construction of Fort Mercer across the river in New Jersey. 
they also set up a, a line uh, throughout the river of chevaux de Free, which are these interconnecting 30 to 40 foot wooden spikes with steel tips on them that were laid into ballast throughout the river and uh, could wreak havoc on a ship that, that didn't know where they were. It would just rip the hull apart. Uh, the Delaware pilots were at first told, you're out of business, and quite a few of them under uh, a remarkable gentleman, an unknown hero of the revolution, Henry Fisher, was like, we're just as patriotic as the rest of you, let us help. So Franklin and Fisher handpicked a dozen pilots that were then in charge of making sure that American ships safely got up the Delaware without running into these booby traps. Franklin was also instrumental in helping with two other uh, facets of communications that were designed to make sure that Philadelphia learned that there were enemy British warships in the Delaware Bay. The first was a relay system of uh, uh, riders, similar to the Pony Express of uh, 1860, that would ride up uh, the Delaware, stop every 10 miles for horses, and get to Philadelphia to let them know the size of the ships. But because there was such a strong loyalist faction in this area, uh, sometimes these riders were captured. So they came up with another ingenious device of small cannons that were fired all the way up to Delaware and then within a few minutes, the city knew that there were enemy ships present. We use some of these small cannons today, obviously modern versions of them, but they're called signal cannons. And they're not very intimidating to look at, but they make a very satisfying boom. And when the school kids are here, we talk about them as this is the earliest text message. You could hear this coming up the river and it told you something's coming. You didn't know what, you didn't know the details, but it put you on alert. Now, you haven't painted a, a, very, uh, a very pleasant picture of this site before the fort. So why was it selected for this, this location? Mud Island, it's a muddy island, mostly drowned at high tide and not an ideal place to construct anything, but it sits at a great location in the river. We are just south of where uh, the Schuylkill empties into the Delaware. And as the Schuylkill um, empties in, the Delaware River kind of hangs a left heading towards Center City. The river's narrow, the river's shallow. So this actually strategically is a great location for a fortification. It's just a challenge to get it constructed. Now, Fort Mifflin, when you look at it from above, has a very unique and distinct shape. And it's a French shape, not an English shape. Could we talk about why that shape is so effective for a fort? Well, it's uh, a star fort, which is what you're going to see on most river fortifications. Um, one of the interesting things about Fort Mifflin's story is it transcends the Revolutionary War. It goes on and is part of the first and second system of U.S. river forts, river fortifications. So the star shape was created by Vauban, again, a French engineer. You're going to hear French names connected with the fort over and over again. And it is a defensive architectural technique because if you breach one side, you don't have a great gaping opening in the wall. It is more difficult to get into a star-shaped fort than one that is square, for instance. Across the river from us now is the remnants of Fort Mercer. You have two forts on opposite sides of the river. What did that allow colonists to do? Fort Mercer was built after Fort Mifflin and was uh, obviously designed to help bolster the defense of the Delaware for any coming invasion. Uh, wasn't, it was completed, but actually when the siege began, they pretty much shrunk the fort in size defense-wise to the size of a redoubt, you know, just a, a, a smaller system of defense over there. But it was uh, very helpful in making sure that the British Navy didn't try to get up along the Jersey side. The sad thing about all of this, as Beth pointed out earlier, is that 
we didn't have any significant land defense on the Pennsylvania shoreline, and that allowed the British ships to get up through that way, which led to the coming siege. Now, the backdrop of Fort Mifflin and its construction is the American Revolution, and it's not as positive as we tend to think about from the end. Could we talk about briefly what the war has been like up to this point? Well, the war has been kind of a seesawing back and forth on both sides for the early successes in, uh, in New England, the siege of Boston after Lexington and Concord, the, so the defeat at Bunker and Breed's Hill, which still showed the British the medal of the rebellion, and the taking of Fort Ticonderoga. There was, they, they were followed by basically a disastrous campaign in New York where General Washington was completely outmaneuvered uh, by the, the British Army under General Howe. And uh, uh, Washington is forced afterwards to retreat down to Philadelphia. Once Washington and his army, which by now is down to just two or 3,000 men, cross the Delaware to Pennsylvania, Philadelphia really springs into action. Uh, the, the militias all volunteer to come along. Uh, there's naval sailors from the Pennsylvania Navy and the Continental Navy who also volunteer to march with Washington when he goes up to uh, further north up to what's now Washington's Crossing and then uh, begins the Trenton and Princeton campaigns. So we're kind of doing okay. Uh, the naval war is, is, we're having some successes that with the, the small Continental Navy. But by uh, September, late summer of 77, when it's clear that the Howe brothers are coming here to fight, Washington, very uh, like a public relations move, marches his army through Philadelphia. The soldiers are carrying sprigs of evergreen in their hats as a jaunty sign that we're going to be okay. But uh, again, Washington is outgeneraled not too far from here at the Battle of uh, Brandywine. Uh, and that forces him to retreat back towards Philadelphia. Congress, which is based in Philadelphia, flees the city like a covey of partridges, according to John Adams, <laughs> and heads to York. And uh, Washington fights a, uh, another battle in early October in Germantown, which actually was not Philadelphia then, in an effort to uh, uh, you know, delay and, and, and cause some consternation among the British. And the battle goes well until the very end when the, the Chew Mansion is defended by a few hardy British soldiers and stall the battle until the British can win it. So things are not going very well by this time. Uh, we've abandoned Philadelphia. And General Howe sends General Cornwallis into Philadelphia to march through with 3,000 soldiers, mostly Hessians. And uh, one young man at the time writes as an old man later how the, the march through the city is greeted by the loyalists. The patriots have already left or are in the process of leaving. And he talks about that the very Hessian drums with the rumble, just plunder, plunder, plunder. But how nice these German speaking soldiers were. How are you, my lad? And shaking hands and trying to make a good public relations appearance with everything. So it's, it's not going all that well by the time the, the siege begins. Washington orders the garrison here as he is looking to try to make winter quarters in, at Valley Forge. He calls, tells the garrison here to hold to the last extremity. And um, the garrison really takes that to heart and despite being grossly outnumbered, uh, defend the fort very fiercely. Now the British fully occupy the colonial capital. It's not looking good, but Fort Mifflin remains in Patriot hands. Why was that so important? Well, the 
British were waiting for resupplies, the fresh troops and supplies. They're sending up 250 warships coming up the Delaware. Mightiest Navy of the 18th century world is looking to make landfall in Philadelphia. So as I said, Washington says, hold to the last extremity. He knows that while it might not be an American victory, the, the time is so essential. He needs to make orderly winter quarters. So Fort Mifflin, with meager defenses, uh, digs, digs her heels in. Uh, the defense of, of the, the river, which was more a defense of the river than it was obviously since Philadelphia's been taking, uh, was a combination of the two forts, the Pennsylvania Navy. A lot of the colonies had their own Navy, and Pennsylvania's was as strong as any. There was under the command of Captain John Hazelwood. And what was left in the area of the Continental Navy vessels, Two frigates had been sent north of Philadelphia that were under the command of uh, Thomas Reed and John Barry uh, for basically safekeeping because they weren't fully armed yet. But there was another frigate, the Delaware Continental Navy under Charles Alexander that would spearhead the, the, the ship the, uh, actions in the Delaware River. And then there were the Chevaux de Free. But Fort Mifflin was the linchpin. This was really, if it could hold out, then the, the defenses could hold out. So it was instrumental in, in the whole setup of the, uh, the defense and the fight. In fact, the largest British warship sunk in the entire Revolutionary War happened right off the yeah. coast of Fort Mifflin, the, the Augusta, a 64 gun ship. Um, depending on what account you read, um, she either became impaled on a chevaux de free or ran aground. I think the, in hindsight, historians believe that she ran aground. It was ultimately fired upon by her own troops to save. Uh, to basically scuttle the ship so that it didn't come into rebel hands. Now with the British Army in Philadelphia, what was it like for them? Were they comfortable or was it a pretty desperate situation? They were set up pretty comfortably, Brady. The Howe brothers were not really uh, uh, bent on destruction. They were very much trying to come to some kind of a peaceful arrangement to end the war. Early in 76 they had sent out uh, a, a pamphlet saying if, if the soldiers and the sailors will just give up, to, no harm, no foul, we're, we'll be done with this. And they were in, and still trying to work out some kind of a peaceful arrangement. So when they came into the city, General Howe promised that there would be no destruction or anything along those lines. And the loyalists who stayed uh, were led by uh, uh, Joseph Galloway, who was an ardent Tory. Uh, but one of the men that was uh, involved in making sure the city stayed secure and wasn't burned by the departing patriots was a fellow named William Austin, whose sister Sarah had just married John Barry a couple of months earlier. So when they talk about the revolution being the first American Civil War, the Austin family basically proves this. But uh, they held parties. Uh, Major John Andre, who's later hanged for his involvement with Benedict Arnold, is hosting all sorts of little uh, after-party shows and, and things along those lines. In fact, when the British leave in May of 78, he orchestrates a, an affair called the Messianza, which is basically jousting and, and barbecues and all sorts of things in, in uh, honor of the departing General Howe. And it's basically the first Renaissance fair we've had in Pennsylvania. The decisions made as we approach the fall of 77 for a siege of Fort Mifflin. Before we talk about the siege itself, could we kind of describe what the purpose of a siege as a military maneuver is? Well, the, the siege maneuver as far, you know, laying siege to Fort Mifflin was just basically try to starve them out if we can't bombard them out and cut off any access. Uh, the, 
the whole battle of the Delaware actually begins on September 26th. Now by this time, Montrezor has scouted out the best sites along the city and the Delaware for building batteries. And he also takes hold of Carpenter's Island not too far from here and places a battery there. The naval ships are waiting to get their chance because there's still Continental Navy ships here. And Captain Alexander of the Delaware sails close to Philadelphia and he sends an edict to Cornwallis and the British commanders saying, you know, if you don't abandon the city, you know, we will torch the city. So it's not the Howes who want to burn Philadelphia, it's a threat by the Americans. And unfortunately, as the battle begins, uh, the tide changes and the Delaware runs aground. It catches fire, British uh, landing parties come aboard after Alexander surrendered and save the Delaware, it now becomes a British vessel. So the, the actual fights are now going on between the Pennsylvania Navy under Hazelwood and the uh, return of fire from Fort Mercer and Fort Mifflin. An attack by 1,200 Hessians in uh, October at Fort Mercer is so brutally repulsed that General Howe decides not to do a similar attack here at Fort Mifflin. But by the middle of October, the siege has begun, and the siege is basically every day, all day long, a bombardment of this fort. Uh, that's the, our, our, our forces are basically hunkered down, but some of them come out into the plaza and take the cannonballs. They're so short of ammunition that they'll take the cannonballs and bring them back and say, do we have a gun that's whose weight fits this? In, in fact, they were rewarded with an extra gill of rum, which was the standard rum ration for every incoming cannonball they could retrieve that, as Tip said, it had to work one of the forts, had to fit one of the forts working guns to be returned to the British. So the battle here from an internal perspective is one of perseverance and resourcefulness because when you're under siege, the only type of resources you have are very limited. So you have to be creative and the garrison yeah. here proved that time and time again. It's sort of like a game of dodgeball with the most deadliest consequences imaginable. Correct? It yeah. is. If you're out, you're really, you're, you're, you're truly you're out. dead out. Uh, Major Francois de Fleury arrives in early October, and it is under his direction that the fort is largely credited for holding out as long as they did. It was under his direction that they repaired at night the damage of each day. In fact, uh, some of the garrison soldiers from Fort Mercer would row over, make repairs, and then row back during um, under cover of darkness so that the fort could withstand the next day's bombardment. And this went on over and over and over again. He's noted in uh, Joseph Plum Martin's memoir, which many people confuse with a diary, but he wrote it about 50 years after the fact. But Plum Martin um, mentions, woe betide him who tried to take a nap because de Fleury was there with his cane waking them up. The soldiers would actually back up against the walls of the fort, because if they entered into the buildings, it was likely they would not come out alive. The walls were lower and the roofs of the buildings stuck up above the walls, almost like a target. And the British would in fact aim their fire there. Now, Beth, you mentioned the fort looked quite a bit different in 1777. What did the fort look like? And if we looked out into the Delaware, what would we have seen? Well, internally, the fort was a little bit smaller. The wall configuration that you see today dates to roughly mid-19th century. But when you're outside and you look in, the 
what appears like granite, it's actually local gneiss, G-N-E-I-S-S. Those stones are all original to the British construction. So you've got the star shape here that fronts the Delaware and actually extends a little bit on the, the south facing wall. But the west wall was an earthen embankment reinforced with wooden palisades. So it wasn't the sturdy, tall walled star shaped fort that we see today. When the soldiers looked out into the river, they see the mightiest navy of the 18th century world and they see land batteries, there's floating batteries, it's cannons on rafts. Um, they probably wouldn't want to be looking over the edge of the walls for fear of what they might see coming in. Tim, the British Navy was the, the greatest naval force of the, of the 18th century. Do you think they were surprised how long the soldiers here held out? They were. I mean, there's documentation, you know, there's no comments about when are we going to get these guys out of here. But you can sense in some of the letters and reports a little bit of frustration. Two of the British Navy's best captains were part of the uh, uh, fleet that was here. Uh, Captain Andrew Snape Haymond of the frigate Roebuck, a 44-gunner, had already come up to Delaware in May of 76 and encountered a two-day battle with a couple of other British ships against the Pennsylvania Navy and some of the Continental officers. And then there was Captain Sir James Wallace, who had already developed a reputation as uh, an absolute tyrant from his bombardment of New England towns, and he commanded a 50-gun ship, the Experiment. Uh, so they had the, the A-team here. I mean, the, the officers were, and the British gunners were the best trained in the world. They could get off an 11-step procedure of firing the ship's guns within less than two minutes, a lot of them closer to a minute, minute and a half. So you really had the, you know, the, the, the cream of the crop here involved in the, the destruction. Uh, the American gunners here were, were trained as best as they could, but it was more bravery. But one of the captains that uh, Juan Trezor had placed at one of the, the batteries, a fellow named uh, Dalman, uh, also wrote memoirs at the end. And he talked about the unerring accuracy of the American gunners from the forts. I mean, they damaged, they, they smashed batteries while Beth is telling us about what we did at night to, you know, patch up the damage. The British were doing the same thing. I mean, it wasn't that these guys were just taking a lambasting. They were giving it out as best as they could. You both mentioned Joseph Plum Martin, and we talk about sources as historians. How important was his diary? Well, it actually wasn't a diary. Um, it was a memoir written about 50 years after the fact, um, but he was a private during the siege here, and he is, it tells the tale with, with great impassioned words and describes the incredible, the incredible challenges of the site. And this was a particularly early and cold winter setting in in the fall. There were, he documents that there were two inches of ice on the parade field when they would get up in the morning. Uh, so it is through his eyes, and he's a young private, so it, people, when they read this, I think, have an emotional response to it, which I think is what really makes history interesting to the public today is they can read it and it's a story and they can put themselves in that perspective. So it is through Plum Martin's eyes that we have a sense of the hardship and uh, the bravery and the, the yeah. valiant defense of the site uh, because he was just like a cog in the wheel. He was not one of the decision makers, but he was one of the ones that had to carry out the decisions under unimaginable circumstances. You know, Martin's a remarkable fella, and you have to keep in mind, this is a high school kid. You know, when he joins the Continental Army, he's 15 or 16 years old, and he lives through the entire, obviously, he survives the, the war, 
And he also has a bit, pretty wry sense of humor. When he's back at Valley Forge, he talks about that the diet consists of nothing and no turnips. <laughs> but his comments of the siege are really, you know, spot on. And uh, so if he's a, a young man, as you pointed out earlier, uh, Brady, looking out at what he is seeing, the, the, the might of the greatest armed force the world has ever seen, you also have a, a junior officer, Silas Talbot, who has just recovered from wounds he sustained in a, a daring uh, action uh, in New York, where his face is so badly burned that he scares the village children where he's recuperating. And Talbot survives Fort Mifflin and later becomes a congressman and then one of the early captains of the Constitution, Old Ironsides. And then the uh, actual field command here is given to a young Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Smith, who when he does his initial reconnoitering of the fort, sends a dispatcher back to Washington saying, I'm going to need a lot more men to do this. And Washington gets them here and Martin is part of that contingent. We've heard a lot of tales of heroism, survival, but ultimately this is a British victory. So how does it end? Well, Mother Nature supplied the British with two weeks of flooding rains in the beginning of November. As I said, the fort's built on Mud Island and that's a spit of land completely surrounded by water. And those flooding rains allowed the back channel to flood to the point where the British were able to sail two warships, the Vigilant and the Fury, up the back channel. Today we see treetops over the western wall, but the, the young soldiers at the fort in 1777 would have seen the masts of two ships. And it is under this tight space uh, that the, the Marines are able to climb the riggings and basically come down with hand grenades at point blank range. Uh, five days, this unrelenting bombardment goes on, up to a thousand cannonballs an hour. The Americans end up out of black powder, they're out of cannonballs, they're, they are completely defeated. So under cover of darkness, under no, on November 15th, 1777, the garrison evacuates. They row across the river um, with muffled oars right past the British warships, but they leave a detail of 40 young soldiers behind. These young men spike the last 10 remaining cannon basically plugs up their touch holes so that the British are unable to fire them. They set fire to anything that remained of use in the fort and they too evacuate, but they left the fort's flags flying. Fort Mifflin was completely destroyed, but it never surrendered. So the British arrive the following morning expecting to find straggling, the straggling army, but there's nothing left. The Americans had evacuated successfully. And that day, November 15th, before they evacuate, was the largest bombardment of the Revolutionary War. About 80 rounds were expected to be fired by each cannon, according to the British commanders, at a, at a preordained signal. So this was just a, an incredible onslaught. Uh, when it was over, Joseph Plum Martin wrote in his memoirs that the plaza of Fort Mifflin looked like a plowed field. It was that destroyed. Samuel Smith had been wounded a few days earlier and had been carried over to uh, Fort Mercer. De Fleury was still defiant. He wrote as early as, uh, or as late as November 11th, that we can hold on forever. But as Beth pointed out, the flooding just proved to be, you know, one thing too many for them to, to withstand. Yeah, ultimately, the fort was surrounded on three sides by the British. And you know, they just, they did not have the working guns to, to respond. Whenever George Washington told the men in this fort to hold out. Do you think he was satisfied with the ending? What did that mean for him? 
Washington was more than satisfied. He was delighted that the fort held out as long as it did and congratulated the troops here. Even the British paid tribute. In fact, um, one of the British generals wrote in his correspondence that the, the siege and bombardment here were some of the costliest weeks of the war. This delay, which allowed Washington to establish winter quarters, forced the war to go on. And what happened that winter at Valley Forge includes von Steuben coming in and training the troops and the French officially signing the alliance and bringing a checkbook and a navy. So what emerges from Valley Forge in 1778 is very different from what arrived at Valley Forge in 1777. Could you take us through the aftermath of this event? Obviously, uh, there was a lot to digest. Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Smith, who was the commanding officer here for much of the time during the siege, um, was ultimately injured before the final days, but he survived the war uh, very successfully and went on and was, as a general, in command of the troops at Baltimore during the siege of the War of 1812. So we at Fort Mifflin like to think that he cut his teeth surviving the siege and bombardment here in 1777 and took those lessons that he learned here and ultimately defeated the British during the War of 1812. The immediate aftermath is rather grim, Brady. Uh, once Fort Mifflin has been left to British hands, Fort Mercer is useless and they get out of there, you know, within a day or two later. The Pennsylvania Navy, what's left of that, sails up towards Bordentown, New Jersey and Whitehill, Pennsylvania. And the few ships left of the Continental Navy, in fact, the original squadron that sailed down to Delaware in January of 76 with so much enthusiasm, is now forced to run a gauntlet up that way. And once they get past Philadelphia, their captains give orders to the crew and those ships are torched. And they like Viking funerals sink into the, the Delaware. So things look rather grim. But as Beth pointed out earlier, uh, it, the, it served as a delaying action. Washington goes to Valley Forge in December. He's in Whitemarsh until then. But they've bought enough time for him to, to have secure quarters and winter quarters that are not touched by any British attacks. Uh, the British have technically control of the Delaware River. But later that winter, uh, John Barry sneaks a few barges down past Philadelphia and actually meets up with Anthony Wayne in, in Wilmington with his uh, soldiers. And they go on a cattle wrestling expedition on the, along the Jersey Shore farms and bring enough cattle that they take a cattle drive up to Burlington while Barry sails his barges down the Jersey side, burning haystacks as he goes to drag the British pursuing forces down with him so Wayne can get back to Virginia or Valley Forge with, you know, the, the, the food. And the other thing that's interesting is that Hal, General Hal finds himself loving Philadelphia. He's brought his mistress down here. We talked earlier about all the parties, and it's Benjamin Franklin who basically sums it up and says, Hal hasn't captured Philadelphia. Philadelphia has captured Hal. Now, Fort Mifflin goes on long after the American Revolution, all the way to the American Civil War, and that's not even the end. Could you talk about the role that Fort Mifflin played in the Civil War? Sure. Fort Mifflin was a federal prison during the Civil War, not the most effective prison, certainly not the prison with the worst uh, conditions at it but we held probably our most famous occupant of the fort, other than Joseph Plum Martin, was a, um, a Pennsylvania private, uh, William Howe, no relation to General William Howe in the, in the Revolutionary War, uh, but he was a veteran of the Battle of Fredericksburg, and uh, he became critically ill with dysentery, and like many Civil War soldiers, um, 
terribly uncomfortable, but unlike most Civil War soldiers, he decided he would prefer to recuperate under the care of his wife rather than an overcrowded Civil War battlefield hospital. So he walked home to Perky Omenville, Pennsylvania. And the detail that was dispatched to return him to the country's service and to face court-martial arrive at his house in the middle of the night. They're not in uniform. And a scuffle ensues and one of them is shot and killed. Howe escapes initially, but is ultimately captured. He's tried and convicted of now not only desertion, but also of murder. Newspaper accounts of the time and the primary source documents transcripts of the trial indicate that there might have been some procedural irregularities. There was certainly um, a push to convict him. He appeals, is tried a second time, is convicted a second time, and is sentenced to death. He's held here at Fort Mifflin, attempts escape, is ultimately captured and sent and held up at Eastern State Penitentiary. So it's a prisoner that, that the Quaker prison in Philadelphia and Fort Mifflin uh, have in common. He's returned to the fort and held in what is now our arsenal uh, in full view of the gallows that would ultimately hang him in August of 1864. There's many questions about um, his, whether he should have been convicted of, of murder. Um, could it have been his wife that shot the person? You know, there's a lot of questions around that. And this is probably uh, the fort's greatest public history teachable moment. One of the things we always say is that history is always being written. And in the case of Fort Mifflin, that's true. Can you tell us about the story of Casemate 11? This is probably one of the most fascinating stories. It's one of the things that brings visitors to Fort Mifflin because it's a, it's a new discovery. And we always told William Howe's story in Casemate, we, we call Casemate 5. It's the last bomb-proof shelter built into uh, the bastion here at the fort. And this is the chamber that we knew most of the Union prisoners were held in. Howe was from the Pennsylvania Volunteer Infantry, so that's where we presumed he was held. In about 2006, our caretaker, our longtime caretaker, was cutting the grass just on the other side of the torpedo magazine, and his foot fell into a soft area of the ground. Being a curious guy, he began to dig and realized that looks like a step. The area has been excavated and we found what we believe to be the oldest portion of the fort. It dates to the British construction. We believe it's the original powder magazine. Uh, it's got different design and different construction than the existing magazines here on site, which were largely designed by the French and American engineers. They all have a con flat concrete floor and a large continuous arch ceiling. Casemate 11, which we believe is the original British powder magazine, is a very small, very confined space. These uh, bomb-proof shelters and casemates and magazines all grew in size as weapons grew and changed. So it's a small space with vertical walls, a seam, and a shallow arch ceiling. So we believe this was the original powder magazine. Turns out it was also solitary confinement during the Civil War. How do we know that? prisoners signed their names on the wall, including William Howe. Um, the place has been excavated. Visitors can go down in there. We don't take groups because it is so small and confined. The ghost hunters have looked down there. Um, in fact, we've conserved the door to what we believe was Howe's cell, and that is actually on exhibit right now over at the Philadelphia International Airport. So it's getting uh, a great audience for the summer. One of the other very strange stories that come from the Civil War, at least in a lot of people's minds, is the Fishing Creek Confederacy. Fort Mifflin plays a role in that. What was the Fishing Creek Confederacy? Well, the Fishing Creek 
confederacies, besides being difficult to say sometimes, is, is, is almost funny in, in some regards. You know, we think of Pennsylvania as the Keystone State and certainly a, a staunch Union state in the Civil War, but it had its elements of uh, anti-war uh, protests, uh, quite a few Copperhead Democrats. And in Columbia County, out towards, you know, further into the state, uh, was a hotbed of uh, uh, anti-war sentiment. And about a hundred or so uh, men, there was, this was right after the draft had been signed in 1863, and Columbia County had its very own little version of the New York draft riots. And about 600 men were called, and about 400 men did not show up. Uh, and they drifted variously, but somehow rumors got through that these gentlemen had set up a fort that was given this name in the press. And it was covered by both the Confederate and the United States newspapers. So eventually, a detachment of Union troops was sent into Columbia County to basically lay siege or find this fort and take it. They never really found a fort. What they did come up with was about 100 you know, Confederate sympathizers that uh, they did capture. And quite a few of them wound up spending the rest of the war here at Fort Mifflin. Well, interestingly, the civilian prisoners, which the yeah. Fishing Creek Confederacy sure. folks would have been considered, um, had the worst conditions here during the Civil War. They were held in these three very small chambers that, you know, if it drizzles for about 10 minutes, they get a wet floor. So um, it was really terrible conditions. And there was a code of honor among uh, the soldiers here. Confederates who were imprisoned here could earn their parole by signing an oath of allegiance to the United States of America. So the civilians really were the bottom of the barrel and uh, suffered terribly. Now the fort's used well into the 20th century, correct? Indeed. What's it used for? It was a naval munitions depot during World War I and a munitions depot and anti-aircraft battery during World War II, protecting not only the city, but also uh, the airport, which obviously is our next door neighbor. So there were actually some really interesting yeah. old political cartoons in the Evening Bulletin, which is no longer in production. And one of them is the shape of a bomb with various pictures of Fort Mifflin and our f sister facility, which is still um, in use with the right. National Guard facility and the Army Corps of Engineers next door um, with all kinds of explosives. And the joke was that if a soldier had a stray spark from his cigarette, all of South Philadelphia would have been blown up. So the fort really played a role um, and, and answered every call of duty from 1771 when the British constructed it up until decommissioning in 1954. It's the spirit of perseverance and just and answering that call. The fort is a veteran of so many conflicts and still today is here as a reminder of what, what it means to serve. If visitors came to Fort Mifflin today, what could they see? Well, we've talked so much about the fact that it was completely destroyed by the British in 1777. So this is one of the questions we often ask our groups on tours is like, if the fort was destroyed, what is it you see today? You see a reconstruction, but not a reconstruction as a historic site. You see a reconstruction as a military fortification. The fort served through all major conflicts. Um, it was garrisoned for the War of 1812, a federal prison during the Civil War, the munitions depot, and anti-aircraft batteries in the 20th century. So each of the buildings here at the fort, although they weren't here at the time of the Revolution, tells a little bit of a story, and they were built in response to military and political needs at the time. Probably one of the most interesting buildings that, we, that you'll see here is the artillery shed. 
often people compare it to a garage or a Pennsylvania bank barn. It's a three-sided building. It's the last building of its type standing in the country today. And this was basically cannon storage. The, uh, the barrels would have been stored on a mezzanine hoisted up by a winch system through a hole in the mezzanine, just like a Pennsylvania bank barn has that hole in the second floor. And the carriages would have been stored on the first floor. So we have some examples of that sort of thing and other architectural elements that we've saved for visitors to see. Do you have any events coming up that visitors can participate in? We always have an event coming up. Um, our event calendar, we present living history events that span the fort's entire tenure of service. Um, we're sitting out here on a hot August day, in, right in advance of Pirate Day, but our flagship event of the year is Siege Weekend, and that comes up in the middle of November. It's the 14th and 15th this year, um, and it's terrific to be concluding that event on the actual anniversary of uh, the last day of the siege in 1777. It's a two-day event. We tell the story of the siege over the course of four fully scripted battles. There are about 200 reenactors that take place, and these are very passionate uh, amateur historians that ha may have any number of day jobs, but their passion, their, their, their deep hobby is the presentation of history for the public. And it's a very accessible thing. We have scavenger hunts that invite the students to participate by initiating conversations with the participants. And over the course of the four battles, the Americans repulse the British for three times, but the British ultimately win in the end. Tim, if there's a greater legacy of this battle, what do you think it should be? I think the legacy of Fort Mifflin really is that it's one of the early examples of American patriotism and resilience, or what Professor Greg Irwin at Temple's fond of saying, a legacy of heroism that's passed down from one generation of veterans in our country to the next. But one of the things I was thinking of, Brady, while we were talking about this, is that you know Philadelphia was undergoing this bombardment and this uh, great battle that was occurring among the households of Philadelphians. You know that this was something they couldn't help but hear and witness and see, and at times suffer from. And if anyone wants to see a point of what that was like, they just have to watch the 6:30 news and the bombardments of Damascus and other Syrian cities and say, that was here. On that note, I'd like to thank my guests, Beth Beatty and Tim McGrath for being here today. As always, if you have questions about today's episode or recommendations for future episodes, please visit our website at pcntv.com. For everyone here at Battlefield Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.